So we're going to dive in this morning. If you weren't here last week, we did an overview message of Galatians. And we looked at this issue of Judaizing. If you weren't here, it'd be great to grab the podcast of that or order the CD because it will give you the, the, the major issue, the major theme that's going on in Galatians, which very briefly is that uh, a group of Christian teachers has come into Galatia after Paul left and they're teaching Paul's converts, these Christians in Galatia, that in order to be real Christians, they need to become circumcised and obey the Jewish law. That's really it in a nutshell. That if you want to be a true Christian, you need to become not only a Jesus follower, but also a Jewish follower. You need to subscribe to Judaism. And that's to do with Torah, law-keeping, Sabbath-keeping, dietary regulations, festival-keeping, all of that sort of stuff. So what they're really saying is Jesus isn't quite enough. You also need this other stuff over here. And we talked about some examples of Judaizing in our modern-day context where we can add things on to the gospel, um, tack things on to Jesus and expect others to conform to them, or we can just do these things ourselves because we think they're needed and we think that's what's required in order to please God. And Paul is just going to cut across all of that and bring us back to Jesus, Jesus only, Christ alone. That's the flavor. Now, we're going to dive in here. Let's just remind ourselves, though, before we do, that what we're dealing with in Galatians is a letter. I know some of you are like, what? That, that, isn't that the thing that came before email? Letters. These are things that people used to write to each other before email, okay? Before there was email, there was the epistle. Do you like that? Ha <laughs> <laughs> Hey, that's my only cheesy joke for the day. We got it out of the way. We can move on. My wife's not here this morning, so I could, I could put that in. Uh, so this is a letter. And as such, we should expect it to have certain things. I don't know whether you remember letter writing in school. Uh, and you were taught... To, to write letters certain ways, especially with the, with the introduction. I can't remember how it went, but it was like you had to put the, the name of the person you were writing to, I think, at the top, and then was it you put your details, and then you left a certain amount of space. It was all very detailed. And then you put the date, and then you put dear so-and-so, and then you left another space, and you started the letter. And there were quite strict conventions around these things. We've all thrown them away now because we just email, text, and Twitter. But that was how it was. It's exactly the same. In the first century, if you were writing letters, especially formal letters like this that would be read out in a church, there were certain conventions that you were expected to follow. And they really had to do with the introduction of the letter. There's three things that you would be expected to do if you wrote a letter. To start with, you would say who you are, right, Reuben. Then you would say who your audience is, Shaw Community Church. And then you would give a greeting, a very succinct, usually just one word greeting. So Reuben, to Shaw Community Church, greetings. That's all that was required, but this was expected. This was what happened when you wrote a letter. So based on that, how would you expect Galatians to start? You'd probably expect Paul to the churches in Galatia, greetings, right? Simple enough. There's examples in the Bible of these types of letters. Very succinct, very simple. Instead, what you get is this. Look at the first five verses of Galatians. Paul, an apostle, sent not with a human commission, nor by human authority, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me, to the churches in Galatia. 
Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. It's like Paul's preached a whole sermon in the introduction. What's he up to? This is far, far more verbose than you would expect in a letter. Most of the time, you should just have a few words in your introduction. And this would have immediately sounded strange to Paul's audience. It might not to us, but listening to this, these Christians in Galatia would have thought, oh, this is not a normal letter. What's this guy up to? Doesn't he know how to, didn't he do letter writing in school? He doesn't know how to start his letters. Something's strange. Something's up. This is unusual. And it all hinges on this little phrase in the middle. If you actually count the phrases in the introduction, it's the very middle one that is the key. It's verse 3. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you look at Paul's letter to the Romans, that phrase is in there, grace and peace to you. You look at his letters to the Corinthians, first and second, grace and peace to you. Every single one of Paul's letters has this phrase. The other stuff is different, letter to letter. Sometimes it's short, sometimes it's long, but every single time there's grace and peace. Grace and peace to you. Grace and peace. Grace and peace, all the time. And it's not just a throwaway line. It can't be because that wasn't the convention that was used. Nobody used that. It wasn't just Paul rolling out something. For him, there's a real significance here. For him, this idea of grace and peace, it really means something. If you were writing a letter in the first century, usually the word that you would use to greet your audience is the word karain. And it just, you just translate it, greetings. Greetings. It's just as simple as that. It's just a basic, anyone could, not a particularly spiritual idea, just greetings, karain, greetings. And what Paul does is he takes this word karain and he twists it or he uses another word that sounds a lot like it. Instead of karain, he uses karis, which means grace. And all of a sudden, the standard Formal, secular greeting is just infused with all of this new meaning. Suddenly, grace is about Jesus. Grace tells a story. Grace is one of Paul's favorite words. It's sprinkled right through Galatians and right through many of his other letters. Grace to you. Grace. Not greetings, but grace. Paul's taken a convention of letter writing in the ancient world. And he's just infused it with the life and the love and the power of the Spirit of Jesus. Everything looks different for Paul in view of grace. And that word simply means it's so important to catch. It's been defined so many ways, but really at the heart of it, grace, caress, it just means favor. It just speaks of the favor of God that's reached us, the love of God that's been poured out upon us because of Jesus, this incredible lavish mercy that has extended to us because of Jesus. It's this act of benevolence. It's this undeserved, incredibly generous, incredibly benevolent love and mercy and favor of God given to us through Jesus with no expectation of return, no expectation of it being reciprocated because we can't but just given, just poured out, just here it is. It's the acceptance of God. It's his approval of us. It's his delight 
in us. It's His yes to us. It's Him standing us up on our feet. It's Him lifting us out of the hole that we've dug ourselves into. This is grace. It is the mercy of God. Some people talk about grace being love with a stoop in it. Not love between equals, but love between one who really doesn't need to love and really it's undeserved, but he reaches down and loves. He reaches down to you and I and just extends this incredible love to us because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's, you know, when Paul uses that one word, I think it's probably the most loaded word Paul ever uses. There's just a whole story in it. He uses that word and it's like a whole story just comes out of it about Jesus' death and resurrection and the love of God just extending to every single one of us now. Can you see why such a word might be important in a letter about Judaizing? Because what are these Galatians succumbing to? The idea that Jesus isn't quite enough. That I've got to do this thing, follow these laws, conform to this expectation in order to be accepted by God. In order for that love to get to me, I have to do X, Y, Z. Paul says, man, grace, grace. It's done. Jesus has accomplished everything that is needed. There is, you are totally free. He has accomplished everything that's required and God's love has reached you. All you need to do is open your arms and receive it. It's coming. It's here. Don't worry about all this other stuff. Grace, grace. And he'll use it all the way through the letter because grace is the antidote to Judaizing. Whenever Judaizing comes up, think grace. That's the answer to it, is relying on the totally finished, totally done, totally secure work of Jesus on the cross to bring the extravagant love of God even to us. That's grace. And then Paul uses this second word. He says, grace, grace to you, but also peace. And peace comes from this Hebrew word shalom. It's such a beautiful word, you know. Even to this day, the J Jewish people will greet each other like that. I've just thought, you know, what we should do in the second service is during our meet and greet time, get people to turn around and say shalom to each other. Why didn't I think of that before the service? Shalom. And it means peace be upon you. Peace to you. Shalom. Usually when we think of peace, we think of, I don't know what comes to your mind, we often think of a very personal kind of peace. You know, we talk about, I've got a peace about this decision. I'm feeling at peace. I've got this peace in my heart. And, and certainly that's the result of shalom, but it starts so much bigger than that. Shalom describes a world. It really describes a world characterized by peace. When, when, when the prophets spoke of shalom, they yearned for the day when God would make all things right again, when he'd put the world to rights, when he'd bring justice when he'd bring relationships into harmony, when, when there'd be no more oppression, when there'd be no more violence, when there'd be no more persecution, when there'd be no more rebellion, this would be the day of shalom. And, and they would speak about it and grip the hearts of the Israelites with this idea that God was one day going to bring about a day that would be characterized by peace. One author talks about it as universal wholeness and flourishing and delight. It's, a, it's an entirely new state of affairs. Shalom. And it's the new creation that we look forward to. The day of shalom. Jews called this the age to come. And it was always this future reality. It was always out there. Shalom. And when you shook someone's hand and you wished them shalom, in a sense what you're wishing upon them is a, is a little taste of that day. 
And you're wishing peace upon them, but you're wishing it upon them in the context of this whole new thing that God's going to bring about. He's going to bring about shalom. And within that world, within a vision of a world renewed and a world restored and a world redeemed, we find personal peace. That's the context within which we can feel at peace with God within this new world that he is going to bring about. For the Jewish mind, that day was always future. That day was always out there. And they longed for it and they hoped for it and they prayed for it and it was the day of shalom. And, and, and saying shalom just evoked all of that longing and anticipation for that age to come. Now, just leave those concepts hanging there for a minute. Grace and peace. And come back to Paul. Look at the way Paul introduces himself at the beginning of the letter. He calls himself an apostle. Actually, in Greek, it sounds really cool. He says, Paulus Apostolos. Paul the Apostle. He, I think he just loved that phrase. You know, it's like, I'm Paulus Apostolos. It wasn't his, wasn't his last name. It was just, you know, I'm an apostle, but it just worked so well with his, with his verse, with his name. So he's Paul, an apostle. And, and for Paul, you know, you, you see this word apostle. He uses it a lot, but it's never a title. It's always an encounter. Always with apostleship for Paul, for him it was an experience. It was a moment on the Damascus Road. Paul's never just saying, Paul, you know, like a sign on his door, I'm an apostle. Immediately this, this took him straight back to, to the most profound moment of his life when he was walking to Damascus or riding to Damascus and was encountered by Jesus. You can read the story in Acts, Acts 9, where he experienced and encountered the crucified and risen Jesus right there in front of him. And you just imagine what this was like for Paul, who had been the most aggressive antagonist of the Christian movement. He was a guy on his way to Damascus to throw people in prison for following Jesus. He was a guy who was doing everything within his power to stamp out this little cult and this plague upon Israel and, and, and make sure that anyone who followed Jesus was thrown in prison or killed. That was his agenda. That, is, that, that was his calling, and he believed that in doing so, he was actually serving God. He was actually doing God's will and cleansing Israel of this, this, this heresy. And you imagine what it must have been for Paul. Just that realization, seeing Jesus' face and hearing him say, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's fascinating words, isn't it? Not why are you persecuting them, why are you persecuting me? And just realizing, I think it took him a long time to work everything out, but just realizing in that moment, I've got it so unbelievably wrong that what God is doing and what he's planning is so different to how I thought it was working and all the energy I've been spending trying to stamp out the Jesus movement is so contrary to what God's doing and using this Jesus to be the light of the world and the hope of Israel and the Redeemer. He is the one God's raised him from the dead. It's like, you know, Paul got it. And what Paul experienced on the Damascus Road was courage, was grace. That's why it's never an idea. You know, we talk about grace as if it's just a thing. You've got to get more grace. Have you had some grace Say grace before dinner. But for Paul, this was the love of God that he had personally been, that he'd encountered. The grace of God that had just knocked him to the ground. And doesn't it just tell you, I mean, it doesn't matter what your past is, because you'd, you'd have to be doing an incredible job to have a past more dodgy than Paul's. 
You know, I mean, he was just violently opposed to the church, and yet he experienced this incredible grace. It doesn't matter what you've been up to. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter where you've been up to this point. We get it in our heads that somehow God can't forgive us, couldn't possibly extend to me graces for everyone else but not me. Look at Paul's life. Grace is for everybody. It just pulls you out of whatever hole you're in. The problem is we have. We just can't forgive ourselves. That's the problem. But God's always willing to forgive and to restore and to just set us. And he, just, he doesn't strike Paul dead with lightning. He gives him a job to do. And he says, you're going to bear my name among the Gentiles. You're going to be my chosen instrument to take this word to them. Jesus just pours grace upon Paul. Paul didn't deserve it. Paul hadn't earned it. Paul didn't see it coming. He just got flattened by grace. So when he talks about grace, understand that it's intensely personal. It's the incredible love of God that just knocks us down and flattens us and just bathes us in mercy that we never expected, never even really believed could actually reach us. And Paul not only received grace on the Damascus Road, but he, he experienced this incredible peace. And what he realized is that this shalom that God had promised, it had actually begun because God had raised Jesus from the dead. Do you notice in Galatians, when Paul first introduces God, the first mention of God in this letter, he defines him. Have a look at it if you've got your Bible. Have a look at how he talks about God the Father. He says, Paul, verse 1, Paul, an apostle, sent not with a human commission, nor by human authority, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Think of all the ways Paul could have described God. God who created the world. God who called Israel. God who called Abraham. God, the light of the, the world. But he says, God who raised Jesus from the dead. Paul says, from now on, God is defined by resurrection. And we know God supremely in this one incredible act of raising his son from the dead because in that moment everything changed. Everything changed when Jesus walked out of that tomb that day. God the Father is now defined by this act of resurrection. And when he defines Jesus, when he introduces Jesus here in verse 3 and 4, he says, Jesus gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. This is the age that Jewish people believe and believe they were living in, the present evil age, and it was contrasted with the age of shalom to come. But Paul says now Jesus has rescued us from this present evil age. He's delivered us from the present evil age in which we live, and the age of shalom has broken in. When Jesus walked out of the tomb that day, God's future, that age of shalom, that new creation, the age to come, it came rushing into the present. It just broke in. In the midst of the present evil age, in the midst of all the chaos and rubbish and turmoil of life, the new creation just came in. And the, and the, and the, and the present age didn't end, but it was invaded by this new reality, this shalom, this future presence of God. And so now you and I live in these, it's like we live in two realities, these like two parallel universes. We live in the present evil age. It's still here, isn't it? You can feel that, can't you, those of you that are going through all kinds of rubbish at the moment? We're living in the present evil age with all of its suffering and all of its chaos and all of its struggle just to stay on top of life. But into the midst of this present evil age, God has breathed grace and peace. Grace and peace. That's why Paul says it. 
Every time he talks about grace and peace, what he's saying is, I want you to have a taste of God's future because it's become present. Grace and peace come to us from God's future and they invade our present space. They invade our present lives. They invade all the stuff that is swallowing us up and crushing us and weighing us down and they fill us with something that is completely outside that experience, this grace and this peace because of the dying and the rising of Jesus Christ. It's all based on Jesus. And so Paul says grace and peace to you in the present. He doesn't say grace and peace were yours, grace and peace will be yours, grace and peace to you in the present, right now. They are available as an experience and an encounter with the risen Jesus Christ. Grace and peace, they can be ours. And I don't know about you, I need a whole lot of them. I need a whole lot of grace in my life, desperately, every single day, because I still convince myself that it's about me and my relationship with God is somehow contingent on how good or bad I am. And I felt it even again today, you know, even this morning, thinking about delivering this message, you know, and I'm convicted even now as I, as I talk about it, you know, I... I haven't been, over the last couple of days, walking as closely with God as I should have been. It's just been that sense of distance. And so I get to today, and I stand here, and how do you think I feel preaching? You know, you, you, you feel like a fraud, don't you? You feel like a hypocrite. And I desperately need grace, the reminder that it's not about me, that what am I doing thinking it somehow depends... Does that mean that I think if I earned enough brownie points with God, I'd somehow be qualified to stand here and, and, and teach from his word? There's no way. There's nothing I could do. Of course I'm not good enough. But grace lifts me up. It picks me up. It tells me that I'm sufficient and that God delights in me and that what he's given me to do and who I am and how I stand, it's nothing to do with how good or bad I am. It's nothing to do with how many brownie points I think I can clock up or how many I haven't clocked up so I get all depressed about myself. It's grace. It's just grace. It's just this wonderful sense that God could never love us any more or less. We're just absolutely secure. You don't have to live your life feeling like you're never good enough for God. You know, some of you feel like that. You just feel like I can never do enough to please Him. I constantly feel like I'm a disappointment to God. That's because we haven't yet absorbed the reality of grace in our lives. And the antidote to that is just simply spending the time and asking God, saying, God, I know it in my head, but it's not yet in my heart. This is where so many Christians live. It's a cognitive reality, but it has not yet been internalized. So we can all give the textbook answers, I'm saved by grace through faith and blah, 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 but we don't live it, do we? We still live on that performance treadmill. We still live trying and earning and working or not doing any of that and feeling hopelessly depressed about ourselves because we're not good enough. Guys, we've just got to... We've got to spend some time and ask God to speak this word of grace deep into our hearts, into a place that it hasn't yet reached. I think this is what Paul's trying to do. He's getting ready for a pretty stinging rebuke to the Galatians. But before he does that, he doesn't just, you know, he doesn't just chastise them immediately, does he? He says, grace and peace to you. Grace. He wants them to understand grace. And if you're not there this morning... Can I encourage you just to take some time, even in this coming week, free up a little bit of time to sit at the foot of the cross and hear God speak to you of how much he loves you, how much he accepts you, what he's done through Jesus Christ. And just hear him say again, you know those words from Zechariah, the Lord delights in you, let him quieten you with his love, hear him rejoicing over you with singing. 
It's the knowledge that we're accepted. It's not airy-fairy. It's not fluffy stuff. Some of you guys are like, this doesn't sound very macho to me. You know, this doesn't sound very blokey. Guys, you know, this is the problem. We get into this performance thing and we think it's about us. It's not. It's about grace. It's about Jesus. It's about God. And I know we desperately need not only grace, but also peace. And some of you are going through stuff today. And life's just crushing down on you. And you desperately need that shalom of the Spirit of God to just invade your space. It's not going to fix all your problems. It's not going to suddenly turn all the lights on, but it's going to make you a different person in the midst of what you're going through. A couple of weeks ago, we had the funeral for, for the Robinson family and little Samuel Robinson, who was born with uh, trisomy 13, this chromosomal disorder. And, and they were told, I think what the doctors actually said to them is that this, this chromosomal abnormality is incompatible with life. And so you imagine going through a pregnancy, uh, knowing that your child just cannot survive long in the outside world. And he lasted uh, two, just over two days, 55 hours he lived for. And then we had the funeral and just watching Barry place that little white casket in the ground. You know, I just don't think there's anything that's ripped my heart out more than that. But in the midst of that situation, just the, the peace, the shalom, that was there. And I don't want to put words in Barry and Kelly's mouth, but I think they sensed it, and I think that Christ was making himself real to them and just reminding them of the hope they know exactly where Samuel is now. They know exactly where he is now, in the presence of Jesus who's nurturing him and cradling him and fathering him until they see him again. They've got the hope of knowing that they'll be reunited with him, and all that just breathed a peace into the situation, breathed a shalom into the situation that wouldn't have otherwise been there. This is what shalom is. It's not just a, a greeting in a letter. It's the presence of the Spirit that just breathes that peace into our lives. Some of you need that this morning because instinctively when stuff goes wrong and stuff hits the fan, we just go into survival mode and we just fix it and we deal with it and we strategize and we just, as human beings, we just adapt to it and we deal with our stuff. But so rarely do we just sit for a minute and ask for the peace of Christ to fill our hearts and just wait on God for that peace that transcends all understanding? It's how Paul describes it in Philippians 4, the peace of God that just transcends understanding because naturally speaking, you shouldn't experience it, right? Because life's a mess. Naturally speaking, we should never have shalom because we live in the present evil age, but that's the thing. It's not compatible with how we feel. It's this peace that just descends on us. Man, I've had times, I remember after one particular meeting, just feeling like my, just anxiety, just incredible anxiety about this situation and these people in this conflict situation. And just through reading the scriptures, it was First Peter and just reading, man, there was stuff in there that didn't relate at all to my situation. I just read it and reading the Bible and there's some power in just speaking it and just saying it and just reminding yourself and allowing God's word to be God's word in that moment. And I just sensed my anxiety levels beginning to drop back down to normal. It's the peace of Christ. It's real. It's not just a feeling and an emotion because they will go up and down, but it's a deep sense of leaning on the one who is immovable. Leaning against the rock that's higher than we are when everything in our lives is just spinning out of control, it's finding one, the risen Jesus, who's not going anywhere and will speak peace. 
We desperately need grace and peace. I desperately need grace. I'm preaching to myself this morning. I need these realities. We need them. We need to extend them to others, don't we? Who are going through stuff. What if we were so full of grace and peace that it just flowed out of us and we could say to other people, grace and peace. Grace and peace. And we'd speak it in ways that are meaningful and say words that are encouraging. We need to extend grace and peace even to our enemies. Even to that person right now who is fraying your very last nerve. You know the person I'm talking about, right? They might be in this room. I don't know. That person who you just, you are irked by them. You really struggle with that person. This is where, it's not going to be in our strength, is it? We need grace and peace so that we can extend grace and peace. But what if we got ourselves to a point where even those people that we found really, really hard to deal with, the people at work that are just frustrating us, that we could extend grace. And you might not use those words to them, but in our attitudes and in our actions, and even in the way we pray to them and for them, we, we give grace and peace. And we become people of grace and peace. When we do these things and when we become marked by these incredible characteristics, we are practicing resurrection. We're practicing the new creation. The age to come has broken in. And we're getting a taste of that new life right here and right now. Grace and peace to us. Grace and peace to you. And for all those of us this morning that need this stuff, because this, I think, is just right where we're at, I want to pray a prayer of grace and peace over us as a church. And I want to ask that we stand as I do this. So would you just stand with me? And if you're in a place this morning that you know, man, I just need, maybe you need grace or peace. I suspect we just need a whole lot of both. You may even, as I'm praying, just want to hold out your hands, just in this posture of receiving. If you just feel this morning like, you know, we, I just need grace and peace. Nothing that I'm bringing to the equation. I just need a fresh filling of the grace and peace of the Holy Spirit. You might just want to reach out your hands, hold out your hands in that posture. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, we thank you so much that you are the God who raised Jesus from the dead. And you're a God of grace and you're a God of peace. Father, we just don't deserve this. We're just not worthy of it. But you have reached down to us through Jesus and you've just taken hold of our lives and you've lifted us up and you've just bathed us in grace and you've showered us in peace that's not our own and we can't conjure it up and we can't contrive it but it's from you and we just receive it afresh this morning i thank you that we receive it in jesus the moment that we turn to him and the moment we begin to follow him but lord some of us this morning we just need it again we just need a fresh filling of grace and peace because we've just we've come unstuck somewhere and we've just drifted lord i know i have it's just there's too much distance between me and you and i don't know how to find my way back But God, I just ask in this moment for your grace and your peace. Just grace and peace, Lord Jesus. Just fill us again, Holy Spirit. Just remind us of how much you love us. And for those who need to hear it at a deep, deep level this morning, let it sink in, maybe for the first time ever, let it just sink into the fiber of our being so that we just deeply, deeply internalize these realities and can start living out of grace and peace. Make us a church of grace and peace. Make us a community that's characterized by grace and peace. Make us people that can even extend these things to others. I thank you, Lord, for your goodness. I thank you for your kindness. I thank you for your grace and peace. And we pray these things because we can, because of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.